as we prepare for the teaching of God's Word. Father, we come before you, Lord. We thank you again for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for his substitutionary spiritual death. We thank you for his bodily resurrection, his ascension, his present session, his imminent return, his second coming to establish his kingdom. And we look forward to be being with the Savior, the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world throughout all eternity. So, Father, help us to understand more clearly and accurately the program in regard to the uh, Son of God and in light of his future judgments and resurrections. Help us to have further clarity concerning these things. Sanctify the believers here through your truth because your word is truth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, let's turn them to the Gospel of John. We're going to begin with verse 28 of chapter 5. We covered this verse already, but I think this is uh, preparatory in understanding this section. And John 5, verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Uh, in this section, we're dealing with the authority of the Son of God. We saw in earlier in this chapter, in verses 22 and 27, the Son has authority to execute all judgments. So he went through the various judgments of Scripture. Uh, here in this passage, we're dealing with the resurrections of the uh, in relationship to eschatological events. Uh, secondly, the Son has authority to give eternal life. So think about it. all judgment has been committed to the Son of Man. And then he has the authority to give life to all who believes in him. He also has authority to give resurrection life. Uh, And notice all who are in the graves will hear his voice, the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, I think the deity of Christ can be strongly attested to in this passage. Um, Now, we have this difficult verse. We've started to cover this uh, last two weeks, but... Um, we add the phrase here, these individuals who are in the graves will come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Notice two separate categories of resurrections. Resurrection resulting in life. Resurrection resulting in condemnation. Now, the idea of uh, those who have done good doesn't this doesn't certainly mean that we are saved by works. This is not what this passage teaches. Clearly, uh, the earlier passage is salvation is by faith in alone in Christ alone. John four twenty four, excuse me, John five twenty four. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him. It didn't say believes and obeys, but believes in him who has sent me, has everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death and life. So certainly, obviously in the context, we're not talking about salvation by works. Um, Here he simply characterizes the unbeliever based on their position in Christ. And therefore, these individuals are characterized of having done good. Only believers can really do things that are pleasing and acceptable to God. 
And then those who have done evil, the unsaved, are characterized by their sinful rebellion. And those individuals are obviously individuals who have not believed the gospel. There's a future resurrection associated with their condemnation. We call it the resurrection of condemnation. Notice how condemnation is tied in with future resurrection for them versus for us, resurrection associated with life. Now, uh, we, uh, we dealt with this passage here, and Zane Hodges has a great article uh, on this section of Scripture. Those who have done good, John 5, 28 and 29, problem passage in the Gospel of John, part 6. Now, his Bibsack article in 1979 covers this passage. He says this, The unbeliever is in the spear of death and is destined for the resurrection of judgment. Only evil things are predicated of him. By way of absolute contrast, a believer is in the sphere of life, to which he has passed by hearing the voice of God's Son, and is destined for the resurrection of life. Only good things are predicated of him. There is no shading in these comparisons. So he speaks in absolute terms, in a sense, of the saved and the lost in this section. Now, we also have to keep in mind there are two classes of resurrection. It wasn't John's purpose here to list all the future resurrections. We've gone through those various resurrections. All resurrections are categorized into two classifications. And by the way, this distinguishes the saved and the lost. Even in the future, the saved and the lost are distinguished by the fact that the saved will be resurrected to life and the lost will be resurrected to judgment or condemnation. That is clear and straightforward here. Um, therefore, there's two main categories of resurrections. Now, if there was all general, simply one general resurrection, one general judgment, you wouldn't have these distinct categories. So he, he separates these two. Separates the resurrection life, one category, resurrection of judgment or condemnation into another category. Now, uh, just to review here, let's see if our, let me fix this here, our chart of resurrections. Now, of course, in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, we see that Christ is the first fruits. And by the way, this is a summary of verse 20 through 24 in 1 Corinthians 15, but I use this as a chart on the resurrections. Uh, we have Christ as the first fruits, then those who are at Christ's coming. Referring to born-again believers who will be raptured and resurrected, those who have died in the church age. So we have a resurrection for church-age saints, individuals who live from Pentecost to the coming of Christ. That is those church-age saints, including us. We will be resurrected if we die before Christ's return or raptured, caught up when Christ returns. And then we have a seven-year tribulation in which God will pour out his wrath upon an unbelieving world. We have the second coming of Christ to the earth after that period of time. And afterwards, in that time of frame, frame period, before the millennial kingdom begins, we have two resurrections. We have the Old Testament saints who will be resurrected. We examine that in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12 deals with the Old Testament saints' resurrection and the timing of the resurrection is very clear after that period of 
unparalleled trouble for the nation of Israel. At that time, there'll be individuals who will be resurrected. Uh, then we have tribulation saints will be resurrected. Those are mentioned in Revelation 20. Uh, those individuals who have been martyred for their faith uh, during that tribulation period, those who are believers, they will be resurrected as well during that period of time. So at least we have three categories or three uh, resurrections that fall under the category of resurrection of life. So those three resurrections fall under the classification of resurrection to life. There's only one resurrection that falls under the category of resurrection of condemnation. And that would be the resurrection of all the lost from Adam onward. Uh, these will be the unsaved dead throughout history. They will be resurrected in Revelation chapter 20, later on that chapter, verses 11 through 15. He deals with the resurrection of the unsaved dead and who therefore stand before the great white throne judgment. And that is that future resurrection after that thousand year kingdom. So the timing of the resurrection, category one, resurrection of life, church age saints, Old Testament saints, tribulation saints. I would also add probably millennial saints uh, at the end of the millennial kingdom uh, will receive a resurrected body. Uh, And then we have the resurrection under the classification resurrection of unsaved dead under the resurrection of condemnation so those are the resurrections we've gone through those already now let's deal with the second half the category of those who have done evil uh, those who have done evil we had this Greek word phallos meaning bad this Greek word evil phallos means morally base or worthless Uh, in the sense that those who are characterized by their rebellion are those who have rejected the light of the gospel. These are individuals who love the darkness instead of the light. Uh, If we go back to John chapter 3, verse 18, we see some similar wording here uh, in John 3, 18. He who believes in him is not condemned. Notice that. If you believe in the Son, as far as placing your faith in Him as Savior, you are not condemned. As a matter of fact, we saw in John 5.24, you will not come into future judgment, meaning a judgment of condemnation. You'll be associated with a resurrection of life. And therefore, it's a matter of belief in the faith in Christ. He who believes in Him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because God did not give him the faith? No. The reason stated here. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. That light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were what? Evil. Parallel that with this passage. Their deeds were evil. So they're characterized by rejecting the gospel. So when he said those who have done evil, meaning those who reject the light, they don't want to come to the light, they don't want their deeds exposed, so they reject the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. They reject the gospel, and therefore they will be subject to a future resurrection of judgment or condemnation. So John 3.19, I think, sheds a lot of light on the phrase, those who have done evil. That includes those who have rejected the gospel and do not want to come to the light. And notice if we read further 
verse 20 uh, verse 19 says this and this is a condemnation that men that light has come into the world and that includes the light of the world the Lord Jesus and men love darkness rather than light isn't that true of our society today men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil their deeds were evil for everyone practicing evil hates the light that's characterized by them they don't want truth they don't want God's word they don't want to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ they are characterized as practicing evil because they hate the light and does not come into the light lest his deeds should be exposed you know light exposes darkness doesn't it I know this very well washing windows <laughs> you know I could wash a window and it'll look perfectly clean except sometimes when the sunlight comes through direct sunlight oh there's a streak there's a mark there's a there's some dust there you know it's just amazing how you know you don't see that and by the way these windows are dirty and they're going to be cleaned here that's one of my assignments next week but uh, now I have to clean it I just publicly stated it right okay <laughs> I'm obligated to do that now uh, should have shut my big mouth but the idea here is they, I mean they, from this of course the blinds hide a lot of dirt right <laughs> they look clean but they're not they're dirty those windows are dirty but light though comes in and exposes the darkness think about that light exposes the darkness and uh, God's light is blazing and intense in every little speck, every little impure thought, everything that is not right with God, the light exposes. And people don't want that. So they run from the light of God's word and the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. They're attracted to the light. They love the truth. They love the light. And so I think this is what he's saying here. Those who have done evil are those who refuse the light. They don't want to come to the light. Uh, They refuse the light of the gospel. And uh, so therefore they will be judged and will be resurrected to judgment and condemnation. Now, there are four passages in the uh, Old T- in the New Testament, actually at the end of the Bible, uh, that deal with the exclusion of the lost from the New Jerusalem. The last two chapters of the Bible deal with what we call the eternal state. In Revelation chapter 21 and 22, let's turn there. Revelation 21 and 22, we have the eternal state, we have the New Jerusalem. Right, We have the depiction of the city in which all believers will live throughout eternity. So the Bible concludes with our heavenly home, that eternal city, the new Jerusalem. But at the same time, these passages indicate, these four passages indicate that the lost are outside the city throughout eternity. It's interesting. The lost are outside the city. Not everyone will end up in that city. Let's take a look at these four passages, and I go into further detail later. We may or may not you know, get to the detailed exposition of those passages. But I'm going to just briefly read through these four passages. In Revelation chapter 21, we see this first passage in verse 8. Revelation 21, verse 8. But the cowardly 
Let's, let's go back to verse 6. Revelation 21, verse 6. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. So the offer of the gospel is to those who thirst. And those who desire the water of life, those who believe, they have eternal life. Think about the woman at the well. That one time drink quenches the thirst forever. By the way, he ends up with that water of life in chapter 22 as well. In verse 17, And the spirit and bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Salvation is not earned by your works or merit. It's a free gift, as in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's a matter of grace through faith. Now he addresses, so he addresses the loss in verse 6. Those who have believed, though, are born again. And then verse 7, he addresses the faithful Christian. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I think he's referring to faithful Christian. Faithful Christians will receive rewards. I will be as God and he shall be my son. Now the lost are addressed in verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It's interesting. He speaks of those who are excluded from the New Jerusalem. Where will they be? Will they be in that city? No, they will be in the lake of fire. The second death is not physical death, but eternal death. Eternal separation from the Holy God. They will be excluded. These people who are believers, who have taken the water of life freely, they are in the in crowd in the sense. They're the ones accepted into the city. They will enjoy the benefits of fellowship with God. But these other ones, they will be condemned and they will have their part in the lake of fire. He simply mentions their sins. Now, this doesn't mean that if there's a Christian who has committed any one of these sins, that person will go to hell. That's a false uh, interpretation. He's simply describing here the lost, just like we see in John 5.21. Those who have done evil. He uses very descriptive terms. But I want to point out that term number two in verse eight, the unbelieving. See that? The unbelieving. And that is the sin that keeps him from heaven and the new Jerusalem. They are unbelieving. They do not believe the gospel. And therefore they are characterized by these various things. And by the way, when we look at the terms here, uh, I think he's referring to those in the tribulation who, under the Antichrist, um, under his reign, They are cowards because they refuse to stand for the truth and they accept the mark of the beast. And a lot of the similar terminology is used in Revelation 9. They're murderers. They're sexually immoral. They're getting involved in the occult. Uh, They worship idols. That will be true in the tribulation period. So I think there's similar terminology back at the end of chapter 9, I believe. Um, And this fits several of these verses. Uh, Notice here, Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. Revelation 9, 20 and 21. And this occurs during the tribulation. Of course, we'll be in heaven. But those on earth, he talks about the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons. There's sorcery. 
And idols, there's idolatry of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. They did not repent of their murders and of their sorceries and of their sexual immorality or of their thefts. Many of those same sins are mentioned here uh, in Revelation 21. So he's indicating that these individuals who have followed the Antichrist, they are excluded from that new Jerusalem. Now certainly that's true of all believers who reject the gospel. But he simply lists those individuals as outside of that future city. Now look at Revelation 21 verse 27. He speaks about the glory of that uh, celestial city in the verses prior. We have the verse 22, there's no temple but the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city has no need of the sun and so forth. The word, the glory of God illuminates that new Jerusalem. And notice here, but verse 27, there shall be there shall be by no means enter in in let's read this again there shall by no means enter in anything that defiles so anything that defiles those who are unbelievers will be excluded from that new Jerusalem and it's very emphatic in the Greek by no means will these individuals enter into the new Jerusalem notice that Anyone that anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, once again associate that with those under the Antichrist rulership. They'll worship the lie, and they'll worship idolatry, and get involved in abominable things. Notice who is included. Who's included the New Jerusalem? Look at the last phrase. But only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. See. Not everyone will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. There will be those who are excluded from the city, who are outside. But those who have believed the Gospel will be included in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now let's take a look at Revelation 22, verse 11. Revelation 22, verse 11. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he is holy, let him be holy still. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? I think what he's saying here is, in the eternal state, individuals who are not justified by faith are still unjust. They are locked into their negative volition. They're locked into their unbelief. They're locked into what characterized them in this earthly life. Whereas the believers who are just and who are righteous and who are holy in God's eyes are characterized by that throughout eternity. It's interesting. So the idea of what occurred in the garden uh, occurring in the New Jerusalem, that will not occur. You're locked into righteous holiness. You will be holy forever. You'll be righteous forever. You're locked into unbelief and rebellion You'll be locked into that forever. And so we have the fixity, the fixed states of the saved and lost there. Very clear. The saved and lost are fixed in their either lost rebellion against God, their sinfulness, or saved in their position in Christ. Now, unfortunately, the New American Standard has a, it's a bad translation, I think. New American Standard and how it reads here. 
uh, reading it as um, something you have to do in order to... Uh, let's, let's take a look at NASB. Maybe I'll pull that up here in Revelation 22, uh, verse... Uh, what verse uh, here? Verse 11. Let's take a look at NASB. Um, Revelation 22, 11. And I want to show you the translation here in the New American Standard. Just looking at this this week here. All right, uh, NAS 11. Look how it reads here. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. No, I don't think that's that's right. Uh, let and notice verse 11. Uh, let the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. I don't think it's talking about uh, their condition before uh, regeneration. I think it's talking about the eternal condition. And let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. No, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't agree with that translation. I think he's referring to positional realities. I think he's referring to the believer's position in Christ Jesus. For instance... Uh, unjust, the opposite of unjust is justified by faith. Legally righteous. All right? The one who is unjustified or unjust is those who have not believed the gospel. All right? Those who are filthy are impure and they are the opposite of holy. So if you look at the three terms describing the loss, it's the opposite of the three terms describing the believer. They're opposites. Um, let him as filthy be filthy still. He's still impure. He's characterized by their sins. He was righteous. Let him be righteous still. Imputed righteousness. Think about justification by faith. We are legally righteous in God's eyes. We will be always righteous. And notice, he who is holy, holy means positionally. You are pure in Christ. Let him be what? Holy still. So, what the lot the lost are not believers, and therefore they are characterized as being unjust. They are characterized as being unholy, whereas the believers are characterized by being holy and righteous. So this shows in the eternal state there will be a fixivity, a, a fixation of saved and lost. And by the way, that refutes universalism. That clearly refutes universalism. There'll be those who will be unholy still throughout eternity. There'll be those who'll be righteous still throughout eternity. Let's take a look at the fourth passage in Revelation 22, verse 15. But outside, and he's talking about outside the gates of the city, in verse 14, outside are dogs. Not literally animals, those described as dogs. That's a term used of unclean individuals. Gentiles, by the way, were described as dogs. Unpure, unclean. So he uses that that term to describe those who are unclean. Those, they haven't been cleansed from their sins. They're described here as dogs. Outside are dogs. And I've always used a joke, all cats go to heaven, but not dogs, right? <laughs> Outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters. Some of the same terms used in the earlier verses. Worshipping idols. Obviously, they don't believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And whoever loves and practices a lie, I think that's the lie under Satan's rulership. And therefore, they are outside the city. They're outside the city. And they remain there. They remain outside the city. So, 
by the time the Bible closes, we have individuals who are excluded from the New Jerusalem because they are unbelievers. Therefore, they are resurrected to judgment. And their judgment remains. They are eternally judged. And they experience a resurrection of judgment or condemnation. Now, we have what is called a genitive construction. The word of is usually a translation of the genitive. And the idea here is the two genitives of life and of condemnation refers to purpose and result, according to Dan Wall's Greek grammar. So we have purpose and result. Those who have done good to the resurrection resulting in life, that's the purpose of the resurrection. And we saw not simply physical life, that's certainly true, but the enjoyment of eternal life. It has that dynamic of the enjoyment of the bliss of heaven, not simply being physically alive. The unsaved will be physically alive, but they have a different purpose. The result of their resurrection will be condemnation. So that's result or purpose of their resurrection. The purpose of their resurrection is for their judgment or condemnation. And that's why the resurrection of the unsaved dead deals with only unbelievers in Revelation 20, 11-15. Their resurrection will be for the pure purpose of judgment or condemnation, and their sentence is the lake of fire forever. That's very clear in Revelation 20, verse 15. Therefore, we have the resurrection of condemnation. So, the resurrection leads to judgment for the unsaved, whereas the resurrection leads to the enjoyment of life for the redeemed. Resurrection will result for the unsaved, their result being judged. Whoever was not written in the book of life was cast where? Into the lake of fire. Now, think about that resurrection further, thinking about what that will entail. That resurrection will lead to their eternal separation from God. That's why it's called the second death. Let's take a look at Revelation 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades, death was a place where the body was, so we have a resurrection. Hades is where the soul goes at the point of death for the lost. They're raised physically and soul uh, out of Hades, so they stand as a person having a body in the soul before the Lord, they were cast into the lake of fire. This also means that the Hades compartment is emptied out and transferred to the lake of fire, which will be the lost place of permanent residence. So death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is what? The second death. That doesn't mean a physical death. All right. This refers to separation from God eternally. We call that the second death. They're eternally separated from God throughout all, all the future, future forever. So that resurrection will result in eternal separation from a holy God. And we contrast that, by the way, with the resurrection of life in Revelation chapter 21. Notice here, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, God is with men. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. 
we will experience a great enjoyment of life by associating with the Lord throughout eternity. The loss, though, separation, condemnation, death. What a contrast. What a contrast between the future of the lost and the future of the saved. So the resurrection of condemnation will result in a resurrection that will not enjoy the bliss of the new Jerusalem. We saw the fact that they were on the outside. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, whoever loves and practices a lie. They are on the outside. They will not enjoy the joy and the beauty of that celestial city. God will not let anything or anybody impure into that city. Anyone who has not been redeemed will be excluded from that city. And they will not allow, God will not allow entrance into anyone. That includes Satan and all his, all the fallen angels. The devil, no more. He was permitted in the garden. He will not be permitted in the eternal state. Praise God. He will be forever banned, excluded. And he will be judged along with his followers in the lake of fire forever. And then that resurrection of condemnation will certainly involve pain for all eternity. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, by the way. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are, and they will be, next word in the Greek, tormented. Tormented. And that means torture or pain. It's a word in the Greek related to pain. By the way, if we look at that word, used in the book of Revelation it's used also of the demon locusts who torment men for five months and they want to commit suicide that same word torment or torture or pain is used so that they will not they will want to commit suicide because they're in so much pain but they will be unable that is the word used in the in the Greek they will be tormented they experience pain day and night forever and ever I don't see how you can get around that day and night forever and ever this is very clear language under the age of the ages and so that clearly is eternal punishment we have the same in Luke 16.24 let's look at Luke We have the account of rich man and Lazarus. Don't try to explain this away by saying this is simply a parable. It's not true history. Parables do not use proper names. Hermeneutical rule. This is real history. All right. By the way, you have Abraham in the comfort section. That you know he would not use Abraham's name by to say the mythological Abraham is in the place of comfort. Right. Uh, how would the Jews, when reading this, think, okay, that's a different Abraham. That's, that's, the, that's the mythological Abraham. That's the hypothetical Abraham. You know, obviously, we believe in literal interpretation. Uh, you can't try to get around this text by saying this is only a parable. All right? Okay, look at uh, Luke uh, 16.24. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am what? Here's a Greek word there, tormented. Where? In this flame. And Hades is a precursor of the lake of fire, by the way. 
It's a precursor. Now, the Hades is not the place of permanent punishment, but the unsaved dead go immediately to Hades, and they are in torment the day they die. Think about that. And they await that final judgment. They're alive in a place of judgment called Hades. And Hades and death will be cast into a lake of fire, which they will be tormented forever and ever away from the presence of God. So their resurrection, the lost, will be a whole different experience from the resurrection of believers, resurrection life for the believer, and all that entails resurrection condemnation, resurrection judgment for the lost. And that's really sobering when you think about it. Therefore, this stretches stresses the urgency of the gospel. The urgency to get out the, the, the gospel to the unsaved so they can be resurrected to life. They can enjoy heaven and the glories of it throughout eternity. Now, the word condemnation is the word krisis. It's the word related to judgment given. It is a sentence pronounced So the divine judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, here, remember, all judgment has been committed uh, to the Son of Man. He will pronounce the judgment. He will sentence individuals to condemnation. So the word condemnation is judgment given, krisis in the Greek, sentence pronounced. Let's take a look at some passages along that line. Uh, Notice Matthew 23. Matthew 23 verse 33 Matthew 23 verse 33 Jesus is speaking here of the unsafe Pharisees and notice here what he stated of them serpents <laughs> call them snakes oh Jesus would never say that right the gentle Jesus calls these Pharisees serpents a brood of sniper, of snakes, brood of vipers. Notice what he stated here. How can you escape the what? What's that next word? Condemnation of hell. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? So condemnation is associated with the place where they will be sentenced. And they will be placed into hell because they rejected the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. How shall we escape the condemnation? Same Greek word, by the way, here, as in John 5, 20, 29, of hell. Now, Mark chapter 3, verse 29. Mark three twenty-nine. Jesus said this, Whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit has not forget, will not be forgiven, but is subject to eternal condemnation what kind of condemnation eternal eternal condemnation here now obviously as we defined before the blasphemy of the holy spirit cannot be committed today it's not swearing by the holy spirit you know people swear by jesus all the time but it's not swearing by the holy spirit in jesus day in the context he performed miracles which validated that he was the son of god the Pharisees came around and said, you know what, he's doing that through Beelzebub, through Satan. He's doing that by satanic power. Jesus was performing miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
And the Pharisees were ascribing that to demonic power, and therefore they were blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And in essence, they were rejecting their Messiah. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will be equal to rejecting the Messiah. Now, certainly people reject Messiah today, but this was unique for Israel when Jesus was alive on earth. That's why he said this sin will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come, meaning when Messiah will rule in his kingdom. He will be physically back on this earth. And people ascribe his miracles or who what he does in the future kingdom to satanic power. They, in essence, say, we reject you as Messiah. That's in essence what they're saying. We do not accept that you are the Messiah. So that's what he's talking about here. These individuals will be subject to eternal condemnation. Eternal condemnation. Uh, Let's take a look at Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verse 41 and 46. We have the judgment here of the sheep and goat nations, which will occur after Christ's second coming and before the kingdom is established then they will answer saying Lord when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not minister to you then he will say to them surely I say to you inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these you did it not to me remember this is how the Gentiles treated the Jews during the tribulation they take care of them or did they reflect their unbelief by not doing so Verse 46, these will go away into what kind of punishment? Everlasting. Everlasting. I think it's the same Greek word, punishment, as the word here, condemnation. But the righteous into what? Eternal light. There's a contrast there. It's similar to John 5.29. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous eternal life. By the way, the, the same Greek word is used for eternal punishment as eternal life. You cannot say, well, one's really not eternal and the other is. Same context, same Greek word. Well, the life for the believer is eternal, but the life for the lost is not. Same Greek word, same context. How can you say that? That's, that's not good hermeneutics. Now, let's take a look at um, Jude 13. Jude 13. And Jude's dealing here with false teachers who reject the gospel. Uh, He calls them raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, fomenting their own shame. Wandering stars. Back in those days, uh, the planets that were in retrograde motion. (laughs) You know, as the outward planets pass up uh, the earth and then it appears, by the way, there's a it's it's a appearance like they're going backwards. You see Mars, by the way, go forwards, and then at the same point it starts uh, in our appearance along the stars in the back. It appears, looks like it, the it's going backwards. Those stars are in retrograde motion; they're uh, wandering. And he's probably referring to the planets there appears appearing as stars. Anyway, that's just a little astronomy lesson. But um, let's take a look at uh, Jude 13. So they're wandering stars. They stray from the truth. For whom is reserved? They have a reservation, not at a diner. <laughs> but their reservation is the blackness 
of darkness forever. Think about those sobering words. The blackness of darkness forever. That's certainly a resurrection of condemnation, isn't it? Um, Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. Revelation 20, verse 15. Anyone not found written in the book of life. You remember we read that passage in Revelation 21. Only those, uh, verse 27 by the way. There shall not by means enter anything that defiles or causes an abomination to lie. But only those who are written in the land's book of life. Here's the opposite. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. They haven't believed the gospel, therefore they experience eternal separation from God in the place of torment and judgment called the lake of fire. Now, let's take a look at a couple more texts here. 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 9. Think about God's justice. I want you to think about his character. We hear a lot about God's love. But we're squeamish when it comes to God's justice. And we shouldn't be. I think both are balanced in Scripture. Now certainly to overemphasize God's justice to the exclusion of God's love would be wrong. But to underemphasize or overemphasize God's goodness would also be wrong as well. And therefore we need to balance character of God. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, He created the angels. Think about that. But there were certain angels that rebelled against God, and I think he's referring to not all the fallen angels, but a certain class of fallen angels that cohabited with women in Genesis 6. We Obviously, that's true because there's some angels that are fallen. We call them demons that are loose. He said, this not, cannot be the original fall of angels. These angels are confined to Tartarus. We know in uh, Jude, by the way, he mentions that. For God did not spare the angels who sinned. Now this is around the time of flood, Genesis 6. But cast them down to Tartarus. The word is specific in the Greek. He didn't use the word Gehenna. He didn't use the word Hades. He used the word Tartarus. And delivered them to chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. They're in that place awaiting their final sentencing. And angels, I believe, will be sentenced around the time of the great white throne judgment. Because we know Satan will receive his sentence right before the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, verse 10 and following. So if God judged angels, and they are in a place of judgment, and notice what he did to the unsaved world in verse 5, he did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, God judged the entire population of earth and destroyed it with the flood. Justice. Justice. One of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, notice he's called here a messenger of righteousness. I think the righteousness that comes through the coming Messiah, the seed of the woman. Bringing in the flood on the world of the, what? Ungodly. Ungodly. We see that in Genesis 6. Every imagination of their thought, isn't that Genesis 6, 8? Every imagination of thought was only evil continually. The earth became so evil and corrupt, God judged it through the flood. 
Another another event in Genesis. Verse 6, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, raining fire and brimstone down on a city. And judge the homosexual population. Oh, you can't say that today. Well, he judged the homosexual population of that day. Rained fire and brimstone down on them. And by the way, it wasn't there simply their pride, their gay pride. There was their gay pride. Ezekiel tells us they were proud of their perversion. Condemning them to destruction. You say, well, that's just an Old Testament story. It has no relevance today. No application. Take a look at the latter part of this verse. Making them an example to those who would afterward live ungodly. Are they example today? Yeah. God's a long-suffering God, by the way. He's long-suffering and patient. We live in the grace age, and God is patient. But God will judge. He will judge. But who did he deliver? Righteous Lot. I shake my head when I look at that. Righteous Lot? Are you kidding? He had sex with his own daughters, and he got... he. He got drunk. His daughters got him drunk, and he had sex with them. And he, uh, his wife, turned back, and uh, he was not a poor testimony in Sodom. His was his brother-in-laws mocked him when he said, "Well, let's go out of this town. God's going to judge it." Oh, that's really funny. He had no respect. Um, he's called righteous. Why? Because he believed Uncle Abraham in the gospel. He believed Abraham's message. Concerning the Messiah, Abraham believed God and was credited to him for righteousness. Genesis fifteen six. Lot, I believe, believed that message, and therefore the righteousness is imputed, imputed by faith. Oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, his soul was tormented. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day, seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. One thing going for Lot, at least he was upset about the wickedness. He didn't do anything about it. He was upset. Are we upset about the evil? Or do we just kind of absorb it? That's just the way it is. He was upset about the evil around him. It affected him. But you know what? God delivered him. In verse 9 it says, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of testing. The example of Lot would be an example of how he will deliver us, by the way. And reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Now, this is very telling. If Compare this, just take a mental note or, 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 or a written note. Compare this passage with Revelation 3.10. We have two words in the Greek that are parallel. We have the word ek, meaning out of. And we had the word, I think, parasmos for temptation or testing. He delivered Lot physically away from the testing. Right? God had to remove Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah before fire came down. One day the Lord will remove born-again believers out of this world before God pours out judgment in the tribulation. It's a verbal parallel to Revelation 3.10. Physically remove. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly. It's a general principle out of judgment. God will remove us physically from judgment before He pours out His wrath on an ungodly world. But He reserves the unjust under punishment. They're continually 
ongoingly being punished. For the day of what? Judgment. Future judgment. And uh, he applies these to the false teachers. You know, especially those who walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness, despising authorities, presumptuous, self-willed, not afraid to speak evil of authority. Even angels are not even that bold. So these are like wild animals, verse 12. Read down through this and you get this. You have a sense of God's justice. You have a sense of God's holiness. Now, let's take a look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. 2 Peter 3, verse 7 through 13. But the heavens and earth, which are now preserved by the same word, the word spoken in creation, God holds the universe together by the spoken word. Hebrews 1, by the way, Hebrews 1 tells us Jesus Christ sustains the universe through the spoken word. Are now preserved by the same word, reserved for fire unto the day of judgment. God judged the earth with water. In the days of Noah, future judgment, fire by God, not man. And notice here, for fire until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. That means they're ruined, by the way. Or perdition doesn't mean they cease to exist. That means they're eternal ruin. Like if I, you know, put a hole in my suit or spilled something on it, then the stain couldn't be removed. It's ruined. It's still there, material. It's just not fit. Um, so unsaved people will experience eternal ruin. The word there is used for clothing, by the way, in the Greek. Let's look at this then. Looking for and hasting for the coming day of God, because which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, how about us? We, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and new earth, in which what dwells? Righteousness dwells. We're looking forward to a new heaven, new earth, in which righteousness will prevail. And uh, those of us who have believed will experience that resurrection of life, and we will enjoy righteousness forever with the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Spirehead. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for those of us who have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior that we await a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. No more of the suffering because of rebellion and sin. We give you thanks and praise for that. And Lord, we are concerned about those who reject your truth and mock your truth and those who are not believers and those who run from the light because their deeds are evil. I pray that we might be a light in a dark place. That our light might shine before men, that they might see our good works and glorify the Father which is in heaven. May we share the light of the good news of the gospel that will penetrate the darkness so that people might believe in the Savior and come to know him. And we pray, Father, that you might give us spiritual courage to stand for you in a day and age in which truth is cast aside and truth has fallen into the streets and trampled upon. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.